Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Toro. Today's serious golfers keep up their energy levels with healthy snacks. And just like trail mix and water get us through a round without flagging, Toro's new Workman GTX Lithium Utility Vehicle is powered by tenacious, long-lasting battery. The Workman GTX Lithium renders daily battery maintenance a thing of the past. The same for replacing lead-acid batteries for a couple thousand bucks every few years. The Workman GTX's lithium battery lasts six to eight years with no degrading of runtime during its lifespan, saving time and money. Let's see Trailmix do that. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo. Today's episode is with Jim Huntoon. Jim is an active member of the Carolina Golf Course Superintendents Association. He is the head superintendent at the Heritage, a public golf course uh, that's part of the Legends Resorts in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Uh, we talk about a lot of stuff, including overseeding, all, all sorts of stuff in this episode. And uh, he's a great guy, uh, great follow on Twitter if you, if you want to check him out there. And uh, I'm going to stop talking about what we talk about and uh, let us get to the show. So without further ado, here is Jim Huntoon. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Jim, being involved with the Carolinas Golf Course Superintendents Association, you've kind of become a part media man, you know, with the Pulling Weeds podcast. I have. Has anything you've learned doing that kind of stuff crossed over into the work, uh, into your work life as a superintendent every day? Not really so much on the production side, Andy. Um, obviously, listening to the pre-releases and sometimes listening to them again. Um, I guess if anything, some of the good advice that's given in those, I guess resonates a little bit more, but uh, I can't honestly say that there's a huge correlation between being a turf manager and a part-time dabbler in media. What's, What's some of the best advice you picked up from it? Being a turf manager, a superintendent can can wear on you at times and can be difficult, but it's also very rewarding. And one thing I do like about the media stuff, Andy, is it kind of helps me tap into being creative, you know, having a creative outlet. I've always liked to do that. I've always been someone who likes to create something from nothing out of nowhere, come up with a new idea and, and just let it, let it grow and see what happens. Do you, what about the superintendent being a superintendent? Is there any creative outlets within your job that you can think of, like where you can do something really creative or out of the box or trying something, you know, I'm, I'm similar. I love new ideas and starting stuff and to my 
to my detriment, I, I start a lot of ideas that I shouldn't do. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of part of being in the creative arts. You know, you throw darts at the wall and if one out of 10 sticks, you're, you're doing well. But uh, yeah, you know, I think being a golf course superintendent, obviously you have control over mowing lines and, and different things. And, you know, erosion is always a constant on a golf course, whether it's bunkers or different things like that. So you're constantly having to either deal with the erosion or change things or um, maybe do something in a way that maybe rebuild something, you know, creating new teeing grounds is something we're working on right now, which is fun. And um, there, there are, you know, there are a lot of creative outlets and one of the most rewarding things about it, um, being able to come up with a plan, implement the plan and then see the fruits of your labor. With the new tees, what kind of new tees are you putting in? All forward tees. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily the forward most, but my particular golf course gets a lot of play from people that are over 65, I would say, that don't tend to hit the ball very far. And the golf course was built in the mid-80s, so there wasn't a lot of thought or foresight to build forward tees. So that's something that we're always constantly working on because we have all this back tee space that nobody ever plays and the forward tees are just small and they take a lot of wear and tear. So that's, that's a big focus out here. Obviously with where golf is going and with distance, longer tees are often being built. And obviously that comes with an increased footprint and cost, but in terms of creating shorter tee boxes, which I think are very important and needed at 80% of golf courses, probably. What goes into that and, and what type of cost is incurred on an annual basis when you add teeing grounds with this within your footprint already? Not really much, I wouldn't say. Um, you know, here on Southern golf courses, we don't tend to treat tees much different than rough, depending on the situation. Um, if there's shade or other limiting factors, you might have to put in some more inputs. But in general, Andy, it's Bermuda grass turf is turf. And whether you're mowing it at two inches or a half inch or or anything like that, it's pretty similar. So I wouldn't say it's a huge change. It's not like knocking down trees and building new back tees. It's more just kind of changing the mowing height and, you know, after the actual construction it and the growing, it's pretty much just um, the same as it was, maybe a slight increase. Only, mm-hmm. like I said, the only caveat that that would be if you had to use a different type turf like zoysia grass down here, which we use sometimes when we have more shade because it's more shade tolerant. But other than that, it's pretty much the same. So it doesn't really change the bottom line of the budget. You talked earlier just about adjusting fairway lines that having Bermuda, it's, it allows you to just kind of switch it on a whim, right? It does. Absolutely. And and they change over time for different reasons. And it's important to take a lot of pictures and kind of document where they were for many different reasons. As you know, historical photographs of golf courses have always been important in restorations and renovations and whether it's a hundred years old or ten years, it's still valuable. What uh, what have you been doing, experimenting with mowing lines? I, you know, have you been looking at widening stuff or narrowing? Uh, I'm be interested to hear the different things you're doing with the mowing lines. I like to go wider um, for a number of different reasons. Some playability wise, some agronomically. 
the mowing equipment that I have for fairways is probably superior to what I have for rough. So I don't mind converting areas of that were maybe rough to fairways. And a lot of times they shrink over time for different reasons. You know, the guys don't necessarily try to shrink them, but it just happens in the way Bermuda grass grows so quickly that um, it doesn't take long for a line to change, but uh, mostly widening. I, I imagine, I mean, like for a line to change, a lot of times you're mowing, your guys are mowing in the dark. Yep. And it's just the matter of missing a line by four inches one day, an inch one day, two inches one. And in quickly, you'll get to a couple yards. Exactly. And, you know, nobody wants to be the guy that scalps the edge either, Andy, you know, because then the other guys are going to look at you like, oh, well, he, you know, he's the one that messed that up, Jim. That wasn't me. But it happens, you know. And, um, and you know, there's some cases where you want to bring things in, Andy, sometimes around trees. Sometimes we temporarily bring things in if an area gets damaged or wear and tear, which is something we deal with a lot right now since the pandemic with the increased play and cart traffic. Um, sometimes you need to bring things in just so they can be reestablished at a higher height and then take them back out. So it, it does go both ways. It's like your lawn in, at home. You know, if, it, if you got a lot of stress coming, you, you don't cut it low. You know, if, it's, if there's a heat wave, I know I don't cut my lawn low at all. You know, and, I don't uh, either. No, I keep mine as high as possible. And my goal at my lawn is to mow it as few times as possible in a year. And that's really <laughs> not any different than at the golf course either. You know, we're, we're trying to grow as little grass as we possibly can and still win the battle with wear and tear because it costs money to cut grass. You, you hit on COVID and increased play, increased cart traffic. I, it, we're at a year a year since really it, it hit, this year's probably been just nuts for you, huh? Yeah, it's been challenging in a lot of ways for everyone. Um, looking back at it, it's been rewarding because it's something that we've managed to get through. And superintendents and greenkeepers and golf course management crews are just adept at adapting. It's what we do every day, and you just figure it out and roll with the punches. Yeah, I, I think people overlook the fact that you guys have been having to essentially manage a team of 20 or so every day for the last year when so many people are working at home. At first, I imagine nobody was really playing and you were like, well, is, is being in Myrtle Beach, it's a huge tourism area. So kind of the life cycle of, of the year, how, how you've you know had to adapt throughout the year. Well, first of all, you know, when it hit, Andy, would be our prime season. You know, March, April, May is, you know, those three months, 25% of the year, we probably generate 45% of our revenue in those those three months. You know, it's very busy and it's when we charge the most. And so it was difficult. You know, we never had to close any here in the Carolinas. Thankfully, we worked really hard with the allied golf associations to prove that we could do it safely and we were successful, which was great. But what happened was, is, you know, we didn't get any of the out of town play that we normally would get. And that's what we're charging the most money for. And, you know, we do a mixture. Most Myrtle beach golf courses now do a mixture of, you know, outside play member play and what we call local play and pack or in group package play, which are just large groups. So we weren't getting any of the outside package play. So, the numbers were actually down in those months comparatively to what they would normally be. 
and the rounds that we were getting, you know, might, that might've been 40 cents on the dollar too. So there was that whole period. And then in the summer, you know, things started to pick back up and I would say things normalized a little bit play wise and more people started coming down and the fall was maybe down 20% in outside play. So not as much as the spring, but still uh, down. And then in the wintertime, we rely a lot on Canadian play. Uh, we get a lot of Canadian visitors here in the Myrtle Beach area. And with the border being closed, we didn't get any of that. So overall, you know, most facilities have talked about increased numbers of play. We probably did less rounds in 2020 than we have in many years. You know, normally at this facility, we're going to do around 60,000 rounds, which is a lot. It's not Southern California municipal course levels where they'll do like 75 or 80, but it, it's it's a lot. But we probably only did maybe 52 this year. But a lot of we have a lot of members and locals that have really grown accustomed and fond of the single cart riding. They love that, Andy. With declining revenue, how does that impact maintenance in your budget? Does it correlate directly or is it something you work with your ownership group on or how does that work? Yes, it did impact it. Um, I was probably, we were probably down overall here, maybe 10% overall. So not dramatic. Um, you know, we had to do some layoffs, which was really difficult. I've never dealt with that in my career and have always worked really hard to, whenever I offer a person a job, I feel confident that I can keep them on year round. But it was difficult and we had to make adjustments. Um, thankfully, I can tend to be somewhat of a pack rat when it comes to fertilizers and chemicals and was able to, you know, take advantage of some stockpiles I had, which helped. Um, it was, but there, yeah, there were challenges and our ownership group was very good about being realistic, what we could and couldn't do, because the last thing that they wanted to do was have things become better and then not have the product to, to deliver to the customer. So we worked really hard at not dropping things off too much, but uh, we certainly made cuts and there were certainly adjustments. With, with less people and adjustments, you know, where are the areas that immediately are kind of like the first things to go in terms of priority? Like if, if you've got full staff, you're doing this, but if, if, as soon as you cut it, this is, this is the first thing that goes. Bunker maintenance you know, maybe going from raking bunkers five times a week to rank, raking them once or twice or just as we can get around. Um, reduce mowing a little bit. So it was kind of the months that I was down in staff was March, April, May, which are really not growing season months yet. I'm not overseeded, so I don't have ryegrass to worry about. So the Bermuda is still growing slow. Um, but uh, so it didn't really impact mowing. And then Actually, by the time summer came around, I was able to staff back up and was actually able to staff up more than normal, Andy, for the summer and the fall because, you know, we've got a large um, food and beverage staff here because we used to run an all-inclusive type um, package where we would serve meals, you know, and so we went away from that after after the pandemic just to, you know, control costs, so part of some of the government programs that were out there, like the PPP loan, were that we were, you know, 
you had to maintain staffing levels. So we dropped staff on some of the food and beverage, and I was able to increase staff, which was a nice change. So it ended up being a productive growing season and into the fall. With overseeding, you guys don't overseed. Others in the area do. What's what's the general split on courses that don't that allow that Bermuda go dormant, play a little bit faster, um, but it's brown versus the courses that overseed? Obviously, that's a, a very resource intensive process, but produces a green golf course that probably a lot of northerners are looking for when they come down. This year in Myrtle Beach, there was probably ten percent of us that didn't overseed. There's different reasons why. Um, Heritage Club is one of maybe three or four others that didn't. Um, yeah, it is maintenance intensive, and our business model has just changed so much over the years that summertime play for us has become more and more important. And when you do a heavy amount of play like we do, um, this golf course, thankfully, is all sand too, so it's great for drainage and playability and, and firmness, but at the same time, it makes transitioning the golf course difficult at times, especially when you're pounding with play. So I just got tired of being at my worst during June and July, which were still really important months for us. I'm here in Polly's Island, which is south of Myrtle Beach. Um, Heritage Club's right next to Caledonia and True Blue. And we get a lot of... Um, tourists and vacationers here in Polly's Island in the summertime that love golf that are from Atlanta or Columbia or Raleigh or places like this that are members at clubs out there that like to come down for a week and play golf and, you know, spend time with their family at the beach. And um, it's an important segment of the market for us. And I just wanted to be as good as we could be during that period. And um, summer golf in Myrtle Beach used to be nothing time. When I started at Caledonia as an assistant 20 years ago, we might do 30, 40, 60 rounds a day in the summer. Well, that's changed dramatically. And the old overseed model, at least here, just wasn't working as well. And I just kind of switched it when I'm going to, you know, be at our worst condition from June and July to maybe February when we're charging less and we're getting less play and there's less demand. And um, we don't get any complaints about it either. We do paint Andy some. When, when we need to, you know, not always, sometimes it's brown, sometimes we paint it, but that's an expensive process too. So it just depends, but it's just a choice that we make here and it seems to work and no one complains. And as of now, you know, late mid-March, I mean, the Bermuda grass and the fairways is completely greened up. And, you know, if your buddies from Chicago were coming down today, they would probably not know the difference. If you do overseed, what you're doing is by late March, April, like you're going to be in peak condition, right? You're going to be, yes. You're going to be flush with grass. Yes. It's going to be similar mm-hmm. to what we saw on, on TV this week, last weekend at the players, you know, and it's going to be lush and, you know, it's, it, and it provides a great surface to hit off of. I'm not here to say that a non overseeded fairway is better in March. It's usually by April or May, it evens out, but, um, mm-hmm. it's still, I would say acceptable for most for the flip side of that. It's going to be really rough when you're transitioning to that right grass. Cause you're having to water a ton, right? Yes. How, do, what's the transition out of it? Like, well, it, it is a process and it's changed a lot too. It's, it's become less and less intensive on, on both ends, like everything in 
turf grass management, it's advancing. And it used to be in Myrtle Beach or in most of the southeast that everyone would oversee, you know, between September 20th and October 20th. Those 30 days were the sweet spot. Everybody would go then. And that also coincides with the probably the best weather that we have in the fall, too. That's changed a lot, though. A lot of people have started going later. I know my friend and colleague next door, Jackson Clemens at, at uh, Caledonia, has experimented with waiting until December to put his seed out and, you know, to not disrupt the fall play, but still get it down and have a less um, vigorous and less mature stand in the summer or in the spring that's easier to transition because it, it can be difficult to transition sometimes. It, it just, it's a weather-related thing, Andy. It's kind of hard to explain. Every, every year is a little different. Um, we have some more chemical controls that we can use to make the transition chemically and smoother as opposed to the old way of either, A, turning the water off, either around the Masters or Harbor Town, uh, the Heritage, and just letting everything burn up and then bring it back as opposed to hanging on to the ryegrass and really watering it all the time and just trying to make the transition as easy as possible. But that could extend well into the to July. You know, in the wintertime, the mowing part of it, you know, whether you're overseeded or not, during the winter months, December, January, February, you're not mowing very much, whether you're overseeded or not overseeding. The big difference would be now, because in order to properly transition ryegrass out of a Bermuda grass fairway, you don't want to let the ryegrass grow on top of the Bermuda, which means mowing as frequently as possible. That can be two times a week to six, depending on your budget and your golf course and what you can do. In terms of just... What's maintenance cost wise if you do overseed versus not overseed? What what kind of differences are you looking at? It can be negligible or it can be tremendous. It just depends on what you're doing. If you're painting like I'm doing, every bit of money that I would spend on seed, I'm spending on paint. Mm -hmm. The paint cost is very high, and and it's all for green. That yes, and it's all for to give the illusion. It's kind of unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, and there's there's other little things, but the biggest things are wear and tear on machinery. You know, um, you certainly do a lot less mowing um, when you don't uh, you don't oversee. There's really not a lot of upfront change costs, you know, because there's other things we have to do chemically, you know, um, spray the golf course with a fungicide to protect the Bermuda and to keep diseases off of it and to avoid leaf drop, which is basically as the plant goes dormant, the leaves will drop off as it gets worn. There's certain things that you can do chemically to help the plant keep the leaves and just have a more vigorous stand to get you through the whole winter. And there's preparation that goes into that. So on the front end, there's not much different. It's more of this time of year when you see the major differences. You know, I'll be mowing fairways. I've just started to mow them for the first time in a few months. And for a while here, I'll probably only be mowing once a week, you know, as needed. And then the biggest thing is fertility and chemicals, which are after labor are big costs on a golf course. And you can tailor everything you're doing to one type of grass as opposed to balancing between feeding and protecting a temporary grass versus a permanent grass. It's kind of a fine line where you have to decide which is going to be better for for the turf overall, but you have two different species that have totally different needs. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Toro. Golfers get custom fit clubs for longer, straighter shots. Now using adjustable technology on the Toro's new 
Green Master 1000 Series Walk Green Mower, superintendents can dial in operator performance for precise, consistent cuts. The Green Master's telescoping handle has five different positions, so the operator's posture will be as perfect as a tour pro's, whether he's tall and skinny or short and husky. The handle's rubber mounts have just enough cushion to prevent any hand movements from influencing the cut. Sounds like Toro's solved the mower yips. Maybe they'll fix the putting yips next. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor to schedule a demo. Let's talk about the single cart riders. Obviously, that's something that has happened with COVID. I think a lot of courses now charge a little bit more if you want to ride by yourself, which is totally understandable. You know, Myrtle Beach is obviously a very cart centric uh, destination. You know, I imagine that cart play is probably 95% of your play. What does a cart per person do to the golf course versus, you know, two carts per foursome? It just creates a lot more wear. Um, you know, one of the number one battles that we have here in the Myrtle Beach area, or really on any golf course that has a lot of cart traffic, is just dealing with that. You know, whether it's fertility or traffic management is huge, which involves moving however you like to do it. I like to use a gate system here uh, where I control the entrance and the exits to kind of spread the wear out. Some courses do different types of cart control method, but they all have a cost associated with them whether it's the labor to move them every day, because if you're not constantly changing those, they don't do any good. So you have to keep up with with moving them. There's labor associated with, it, with that, whether you have ropes and, and posts, or I use split rail fencing, you know, it needs to be weed-eated underneath, and it, it's just it needs to be straightened and, and repaired to kept nice. So it's just a lot of maintenance. I never thought about having to mow under it. Yeah. You know, because you have to mow to, your mowers. That's, a, that's an interesting thing I never even thought about. Yeah, it's a lot to it. <laughs> a lot. It takes us 20 man hours a week to keep it all weed-eated down when the grass is really growing. I mean, there's things you can do chemically to, you know, to slow the growth of the grass or stun it back. And um, in some areas, there's thicker you know, swords of grass and other places. So, but yeah, there's a definite cost with that. So it's a challenge, but important if you want to have a presentable golf course and you want your playing areas to be as good as they can be. Yeah. And I imagine it's, it's like, if you, if there were no rules, everybody would just drive, like you'd have the same spot where everybody would get off the path and then everything from there would be complete go to shit. Yeah. And sometimes that method is better than than the gate system or trying to control the wear if you're not moving it. You know, it, it just depends. It's something that needs to be evaluated by each facility and superintendent. And some courses hold up better to wear than others. You know, obviously turf needs sunlight, water and, you know, nutrition, which it's very adept at getting from the soil, whether we provide it or not. But sunlight and and water are limiting factors on golf courses whether it's trees or drought conditions or you know light soils where waters perk really quickly that's always something that um that you're trying to balance out and you know if you don't have any trees and you have perfect sunlight perfect water um unlimited water it's less of less of an issue than it is with you have all these other challenges stacked on top of each other and turf's resilient it can stand to up to a lot of stresses, Andy. But once you start piling different ones on top of each other, 
sometimes there is nothing you can do. So the Heritage Club is is part of the Legends Resort courses, and there's four other courses. Mm-hmm. How do you interact with the other courses? Do you guys talk a lot, or is it pretty much everybody runs their own show? No, we talk a lot. We're very close. Um, Mike Banker is our director of agronomy at the Legends. He's over the three courses up there. Josh Schumacher is at Oyster Bay right over the state line in um, Calabash, Sunset Beach, North Carolina. We talk a lot. Mike and I are very close. Um, We discuss things quite frequently. And to be honest with you, Andy, there's a lot of different superintendents here in Myrtle Beach and across the country that I talk to a lot. We, We tend to stick together. We have to. We share ideas. And here in Myrtle Beach in general, we have a good camaraderie amongst us. You know, it's a resort destination. So we're competitors, but we're also teammates where we're trying to attract people to come here to, you know, spend their dollars to play as opposed to our competitors, whether it's Pinehurst or Hilton Head, Charleston area, the Robert Trent Jones golf trail in Alabama, you know, so we're, we have a a vested interest in, in everybody succeeding. So we try to work together and, and, and further our, our success across the board. But we, I do, I do talk with my, the guys, my colleagues within my company quite frequently. And, you know, we were, I was just um, on a webinar before we got on here with everybody from Century Golf across the country. And we do a lot of those type of things too, and just get together and, and, and talk about what's going on. I get asked this question all the time. I haven't been, and I need to go. It's something that I keep saying every year that I need to go to your, your neck of the woods, but you know, where if somebody was coming and they're into golf architecture, like what's the four to five golf courses they they need to see in Myrtle Beach? Caledonian True Blue. Obviously we hear a lot about those and rightfully so. They're they're very popular and fun to play. Legends Heathland, I think, is a big one. Um it's one of the courses in Myrtle Beach that's uh been preserved really well. It hasn't changed very much from when Tom first built it. I would love to get him out there sometime and just kind of pick his brain, but I don't think it's changed very much. The Dunes Club is definitely one. I think it's a really good example and one of Robert Trent Jones's best designs. That kind of put him on the map, right? It did. When he built it in nineteen forty eight, it was one of the first ones. Yeah. And um it's been changed, but um, it's a good club and, you know, a great spot to, to kind of understand his style, I think, Andy. Um, it's yeah. very true to form, I guess. Whether you're a huge fan of RTJ or not, it is true to form. So, Do they allow public play? They do. Yep. That's awesome. They're mostly a private club, but they do allow... You have to stay at certain hotels and certain packagers have a opportunity to play there. Same thing with Watchesaw Plantation. That's a mostly private club, but I think they do allow a little bit of outside play too. That's an 80s Tom Fazio course. and It was built by Strance, right? It was. And if you know about Strance and, and his style, you can see that right away when you get out there. Um, I like Prestwick. That's a Pete and PB die. It's not really dramatic like a lot of other dies that were built later on in the 90s and in the 2000s it's from the 80s um it's got some good green complexes but those are the those are the four or five that i i would start with you know obviously um i, pre- I should probably say heritage club since that pays my bills um yeah, <laughs> yeah I, i've heard from numerous people that your place is a spot that you should check out when you're in town 
Yeah, and it, it's popular. You know, Strands has had his fingers on this place too, and it was originally a Dan Maples, and you know, Dan left before the course was finished, and the developers, Danny and Larry Young, ended up finishing it and changing some things, and it's um kind of one of those courses that you can tell when you ride around it that it's had a lot of different hands on it and um, doesn't necessarily always have a theme that goes all the way through. It has some elements of, you know, golden age or classic architecture in some ways, but it also has um, a lot of the modern 80s style bulkheading and, and, you know, the stuff that was popular then. But overall, people like to come here and play because it's a, it's a cool piece of land. There's tons of mature trees. There's tons of wildlife. It's right on the Waccamaw River, the Intercoastal Waterway, and it does have a very cool sense of place. You talked about a little bit of a lack of cohesion with the architecture. As a superintendent, are there things that you can do that can try and build cohesion when the architecture doesn't have it? You can do anything with money, Andy. <laughs> as long as you have the money and the tools and the budget, uh, yes, I think you can. I mean, there's some superintendents over the years that have completely transformed that, you know, Bob Rainham, one of your last guests on this podcast has completely transformed Atlantic. And, you know, I was out there in 2006 when he was just starting and it's amazing what, um, what he was doing. You know, he stripped down an entire hole to, it was nothing but fairway and a green, every other bit of grass was gone. And he single-handedly with the help of Reese, some and some other, shapers and and architect that he's employed out there but yeah you can and uh i'd love the opportunity to do that i think heritage is the type of course that uh someday i think it will be renovated hopefully i'm here still here when that happens because i'd like to be part of it but uh the bones are here the routing is is good the the land you know the soil everything's in place it just needs um like a lot of golf courses built in the 80s and 90s it needs freshening you know crumbling infrastructure and deferred maintenance happens on every golf course and same with erosion you know you can't stop the forces of weather winds rains tides it's all they all have effect as as time goes on on a golf course I've talked to some superintendents that kind of, you know, and I think everybody in, in a professional setting have goals. And I'm curious, do you, do you have goals? Obviously, you just alluded to like being around for a renovation. Are there are there different goals that you have professionally that, you know, you keep in mind when you're, you know, obviously you've been at Heritage for a long time. And are there things that you want to see done to, you know, in, that you want to do in your career? Yeah, there are, of course, and they change as time goes on. You know, I've always had the vision when I started this of possibly being an owner of a golf course in one way, shape or form. Um, It's kind of why I got into it. Um, Obviously, if I could be involved with building or renovating or redesigning a golf course, if it's existing, whether it's this one or another one, um, that's something that I'd really like to, to do someday. As far as being a superintendent, um, there's certain, you know, every superintendent dreams about their dream job and there's different places where you think you'd like to be, but it's important to, I think too, Andy, just to stay focused on where you're at because yeah, the grass is not always greener on the other side of the road. And sometimes what I thought was probably a dream job may not line up with what my lifestyle is today. It's important when you're doing this to have balance in your life. And, um, there's only so many hours in a day and, 
it, it, it can be encompassing and, and all consuming at times. And, you know, we're all wired a little bit differently. So um, I have a lot of respect for all superintendents, whether they're at high, high end clubs or, or low budget, there's nobility in every facet of, of, of the business, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I want to talk about the start of your career working at Caledonia, Mike Strand's design. I imagine that was a unique experience being the golf course was so drastically different than most of the others in the area. Absolutely. And it was one of the first golf courses that I saw in Myrtle Beach before I moved down here. I was, I'm from the Midwest and graduated from Iowa State with a different degree in urban planning and knew I didn't want to do that. Knew I wanted to get into golf. I just got away from golf a little bit. It's always been a constant in my life, but when I was in school at Iowa State, it was kind of faded a little bit, but fired back up towards the end. So I was looking into two-year schools and moved down here to go to Ori Georgetown. And yeah, the first time I saw Caledonia, it really blew me away. And I wanted to work there and it's the first place I went and thankfully was able to get on there. And um, I really enjoyed my time there. And, and it did teach me a lot about um, golf course maintenance, but just golf in general. And it was kind of a, uh, just a cool place to be. I still really enjoy going over there and it's it's really cool when you've been a superintendent or an assistant and you go back to somewhere you've been and you're not there anymore and it just brings back a lot of memories and there's just little things that that you ride around and see that you were involved with one way or the other and there's a real sense of pride in that yeah can you give us a, an example of something like that it's, it's kind of neat at caledonia there's a few t's that i was kind of instrumental in pushing forward to build, you know, there's a putting green there that we added, um, that wasn't just my idea. It was certainly in collaboration with Jackson Clemens, who's still over there today as superintendent. Um, but we built it in house and it was my first experience ever building a green from scratch. And it was a cool little project. And yeah, you know, it's just like every time I go by there, I think, you know, myself and everybody else who was on staff, you know, we were the ones that built that, you know, that Strance didn't put that there, but it was something that was needed and it's been an improvement to the facility. So that's, that's probably the best example I can give you. Did you spend much time with Mike Strance? Well, did he come by ever or when you were working there? I actually was around him more at Bulls Bay, Andy. Okay. Cause he was building Bulls Bay hey, during that time. There you go. Exactly. Um, a friend of mine, who a classmate of mine ended up getting a job at Bulls Bay during the grow in and during the construction. So I was able to go down there um, then and be around Mike some. And, you know, he was around at Caledonian True Blue and some, but, you know, he was kind of off um, at that time doing Bulls Bay. That's what it, when he would have been up at, at Todd Hill Farm building that. And so he wasn't really around a lot then, but, um, you certainly heard the stories, you know, a lot of the people that built Caledonia and True Blue or that work there now um, all have a lot of ties to Strands. You know, Strands really got his start back in the business after he'd gotten out through the Youngs who built the Legends. And, you know, he was brought in to finish the Parkland course after Tom left. And, you know, that kind of preceded him getting the job at Caledonia. A lot of the guys that worked for Mike, the Jones brothers, um, the Kinder brothers, you know, Mark White, those guys were all originally involved with building the legends and then Caledonia. And then they kind of got with Mike and 
started um, building golf courses together. But um, there's tons of stories. And, you know, I did spend a little time around him, certainly not as much as some other people. But uh, I'll never forget the first time I saw him at True Blue. I came around a corner and he was up there on the putting green. And, you know, he just had a real presence, Andy. He was tall, the beard, the hair. It was just, uh, you know, striking to say the least. Yeah. And he was a really down to earth guy, very friendly too, which was great. Yeah. This is the thing I always think about. It's like where it would be had he not passed away at a young age, uh, where, where golf course, cause he definitely was like kind of the representative of, of the maximalism culture that kind of got killed off when, when he left And obviously Doak and, and, uh, Bill Corb, Ben Crenshaw, and Gil Hans have been kind of on the other end of the spectrum, naturalism and minimalism. And I think, you know, we're starting to see maximalism come back a little bit with Rob Collins and some others. But it's a, it's just an interesting thing to think about, you know, where things would have gone. It would have been fascinating to see. Because obviously, as you know, I mean, all architects kind of mature or change or do things differently. It would have been interesting to see. And you know, a lot of the inspiration for his stuff was similar to Tom and Gil, though, too. You know, their Mike's a lot of Mike's stuff was inspired by Golden Age type stuff, but he did definitely take it to the next level. And it's been interesting to see, you know, he was so widely touted back in the turn of the millennium, you know, in the late 90s and the early 2000s. You know, he got all those awards from Golf Magazine and Golf Digest. And then, you know, there was a period there where you didn't hear much about him. And it's obviously with social media and, and, you know, different, more of a spotlight being put back on Mike recently. It's, he's really come back into the forefront. I I think he's, he's romanticized almost more than he would have been, you know, now than if, if he'd kept designing golf courses, I don't know. I think it, it adds to his legend. And, you know, most of his facilities are public facilities, Andy. So people can play them readily, you know, and they're, you know, you can easily play six of them in a three-day or three- or four-day trip if you really want to. Um, so I think the access to his work is had something to do with that. Yeah, access and concentration in an area of the country which allows for year-round play. Which, you know, ultimately when you talk about Myrtle Beach golf, that's why it's become, I think, what it is, is, you know, the weather and there's a lot of reasons to come to Myrtle Beach to play golf that don't always necessarily have to do with the quality of the architecture. There's a lot of activities to do, and um, it's set up well for for vacationing. Yeah, what are, what are some under the radar spots at Myrtle Beach? Are there you got any good recs like that, that might not make your uh, your travel guides that you most people probably would follow? Do you have any good restaurants uh, recommendations? Yeah, I, you know, Polly's Island is great for restaurants. Um, Frank's. Frank's Outback, two institutions here are, are, you can't miss those. Um, in Myrtle Beach, um, I don't really get up there as much. I don't really know the restaurants. It seems like Polly's Island's the place to hang out. It is. I'm very partial to it. I've lived here for, you know, 19 years and um, it's a different vibe than Myrtle Beach. You know, it's separated from Myrtle Beach and, you know, we've got 10 golf courses within five miles of each other here in, in Polly's. It's very tightly packed in with golf courses. But you know, just Andy with you know, we've got a lot of natural outdoorsy type things to do here that people don't really hear about. You know, I mean, one of the cool things about here in Paulies and this part of the Myrtle Beach area is, you know, we've got a freshwater river that is 
unspoiled and not crowded at all where you can, if you're into river type or water sports, it's excellent for that, whether it's boating or uh, fishing or hunting. And then we have, you know, the ocean and salt water and, you know, inshore, outshore fishing. You know, there's lots of cool, um, there's a couple of cool state parks here. We have Brook Green Gardens and there's just a lot of, you know, different things that you can do that you don't hear about. You know, most people think of Myrtle Beach as a, a golf destination or a beach destination, but um, it's just a, if you love outdoor activities, it's a cool place to live. I got to get there. Maybe 2021 is the year. Maybe fall. I got. I got to. Uh, I got to work it into the calendar. That's that's the best time for sure. Jim, thank you so much for coming on. People can find you. You're you're active on Twitter, and then you're also on Instagram, and then you're obviously a big part of the uh, Carolinas Golf Course Superintendents Association, as well as the uh, the Pulling Weeds podcast. That's correct. That's correct. I'm. I'm at all those spots, and I do enjoy interacting with people. It's fun. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. This episode was edited by Meg Atkins and Garrett Morrison. And I just wanted to call out, you know, we, we just launched a couple of events, the stalemate at Meadowbrook Country Club up in uh, Detroit area. Wonderful golf course that was redesigned by Andy Staples. Awesome greens. Should be a really fun event. Uh, as well as the cheesecake. Not cheesecake. Cheese steak. <laughs> I don't know why I got cheesecake there. But the cheese steak at uh, Rolling Green. Another amazing golf course that's in the Philadelphia area. Uh, it's a William Flynn unbelievable ground for golf there and a really tough set of greens it should be an awesome event and that these are both june events june 7th and june 28th uh for the cheesesteak at rolling green so hope to see you guys there you can see those uh, in our pro shop or on the fried egg website on our events page which is a tab that you can find at the top Thank you.